It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Hey, everybody. Hello. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. And today is Wednesday, April 12th. You are talking with me today. I'm your host for a public affair. I'm Carousel Baird. Thanks so much for joining us. We're having a great conversation today. So we have been talking so much over the past uh multiple months, I think, about the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. And it got me thinking, I know we've all been talking about the role that the Wisconsin Supreme Court plays. And it got us all thinking here at Ward that we need to make sure we also have an important conversation about the role the United States Supreme Court plays. So today we're sort of going to kick off a show that we're going to have a couple shows in a row talking about some of the recent cases before the Wisconsin, uh, the United States Supreme Court. I need to stop saying Wisconsin. We've been saying Wisconsin for too many months now. So let's focus now on the U.S. Supreme Court. There was one case in particular that we all here at Wart were talking about. I know our news director, Sholly, really wanted to have a conversation about um, a case that involves the Internet. And the headlines, if you've been reading about it, the headlines were always about a case that could change the internet as we know it. Sort of this doomsday idea of Section 230. What is Section 230? Here to sort of break down what is happening and all of those conversations about the internet and how it is interacting with the U.S. Supreme Court. We have today Professor Alan Rosenstein joining us. He is an associate professor of law from the University of Minnesota Law School, my favorite law school, my alma mater. Hello, Professor. Hi, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. So let's start off first. There's two cases, but one of the cases that we're um, it's getting most of the attention is Gonzalez versus Google and sort of the synopsis is whether federal law protects Internet platforms when their arc algorithm targets users and recommends content. That's sort of the synopsis when you go to the U.S. Supreme Court website to know. Can Tell us a little bit about the facts of this case and why it's important. Sure. So I'll I'll give a slightly longer synopsis, and then we can sort of dig into different parts uh, that, we, that we'd like to. Um, so the the facts are quite tragic. In 2015, there was a set of terrorist attacks uh, carried out by the so-called Islamic State (ISIS) in Paris, uh, killed uh, many individuals, including several Americans. One of those was uh, Nohemi Gonzalez, who was a college student spending some time in Paris, um, and uh, Gonzalez's family ultimately sued Google. Um, and it sued Google under a statute called the Anti-Terrorism Act, which is a federal law that uh, allows individuals to sue um, those who in any way support acts of terrorism. Uh, and the theory that Gonzalez's family put forward was that Google, which owns YouTube, um, by allowed pro-ISIS content on its platform. Uh, and not just allowed it, but recommended through its algorithmic recommendation systems that content. Uh, and through that process, generally helped ISIS's recruiting efforts. Uh, and because it generally helped ISIS, uh, even if it was unknowing, there's no allegation that YouTube or Google was doing any of this on purpose, um, uh, or that YouTube or Google in any way facilitated the specific terrorist attack, just that YouTube and Google were generally helpful to ISIS because ISIS got to put its recruiting videos on YouTube. Because of that, they could, uh, YouTube could be held liable, at least in part, for uh, Gonzalez's death and for the terrorist attack. Now, when the family sued Google, Google responded by invoking another law, and this is the law we're going to spend all our time talking about, Section 230, um, <clears throat> uh, that was passed as part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And that law generally immunizes platforms from civil liability uh, for harms that are coming out of third-party content. Um, and so the 
prototypical example here is uh, if uh, I defame you on Facebook, let's say, you can sue me, but you can't sue Facebook. Mm -hmm. That's the general idea. And so the question before the court is, <clears throat> does Section 230 apply not simply to the hosting of third-party content, but to the recommending of third-party content? Because if it does, then this lawsuit goes away. Uh, and if it doesn't, then the courts are going to have to deal with the underlying question of uh, liability under the uh, terrorism statute. Now, there aren't that many cases that are brought against platforms for aiding and abetting terrorism. Um, the reason this case is nevertheless so important is because Section 230, which the court would presumably have to interpret or might interpret as part of resolving this case, that is super important. That does apply to all of us because we all spend all our time on the internet on these platforms. And so any change to Section 230, or more specifically, any um, interpretation of Section 230 that the Supreme Court offers, and this is the first time the Supreme Court is in a position to interpret Section 230, which is yep. why this is such a big deal, uh, that will have a, a profound effect for, for good or bad or probably some combination of the both um, on the internet and therefore on all of us. So thank you so much for that sort of broad, broader synopsis of what the case was about. And I have a couple of questions I, I want to sort of emphasize that I think are important to the conversation, which is, you know, the use of the word um, recommend. What happened in this scenario wasn't anything extraordinary beyond me shooting a video of myself telling someone how to do something and putting it on YouTube. Is is that correct? Is this just sort of the everyday, someone takes a video, someone puts it on YouTube, someone hopes that other people out there see it and find it helpful. It just happened to be that that entity was ISIS and they were telling people how to conduct terrorist actions. That That's right. And the only thing I would add is that um, the entity happened to be ISIS and the platform happened to be one of the giant platforms that have you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not billions of users and um, an army of the best computer scientists in the world to design the best algorithms so as to uh, what in Silicon Valley is euphemistically called engagement, uh, what for the rest of us is called wasting a bunch of time on YouTube, something that I am certainly <laughs> guilty of myself. Absolutely. Um, and and so uh, it, yes, it, the the uh, there's nothing uh, particularly sort of interesting about this fact pattern from the perspective of social media, but that just underscores how incredible social media is because yes. literally every piece of content ends up being amplified as much as is humanly possible because the algorithms are so good at giving users exactly what they well, I don't want to say want necessarily, but exactly what they will watch, uh, and it's watching that of course earns YouTube money. I think that's so important to to point out that this is not this is just what happens ordinarily and in the appropriate intended use of the platform that all of us do every day. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, OK, so before we then dive deeper down into that, I was wondering if we could back up a little bit and talk about Section 230. As you said, this is the first time the United States Supreme Court is reviewing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, and this section, this act was passed in 1996. I want to read the the sort of p sentences that people think are relevant from that. It says, um, Section 230 of the communic Communications Decency Act says, No provider or user of, or of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So break that down for us. What does that mean? Well, that is the, that is the fundamental question. And in particular, uh, and, and when I sort of explain this to, to folks, I like to, to, to rephrase that a little bit just to replace some of the jargon. Um, and so that long sentence can be rephrased, I think, without any loss of rigor as um, for our purposes, no platform shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of anyone else's content. So okay. that's how I tend to think of 230. And then the question here is, what does it mean to be treated as the publisher of something? And every Section 230 debate is ultimately um, a attempt to understand the phrase, what the, the phrase treat as a publisher of someone else's content. 
Now, the problem is that this language is ambiguous, or at least it's not obvious what it means in a wide variety of situations to treat someone as a publisher. Um, and so to understand what that language means, it is uh, necessary to go back to 1996 and try to figure out what Congress was trying to do at the time. And, uh, you know, I should warn listeners, this is a little convoluted. So feel free to cut me off at, at, at any moment. But I do think that you sort of have to know this backstory to be able to look at these words and, and really understand what Congress was trying to do. Absolutely. And that they were responding to a case from 1995 just the year before. Yes, that's right. They were responding to two things, actually. So um, the first thing they were responding to was what Congress was worried about in 1996. Uh, and it might strike people as um, a little quaint, but in 1996, the big concern about the internet was children's access to pornography. That's what everyone was absolutely terrified about. Uh, and I only say it's quaint, not because it's not a problem, but because uh, we've discovered there are, there are even bigger issues in, in the last uh, 30 years that we've had to deal with. But that was the thing Congress was trying to solve. And the way that they tried to solve that was with something called the Communications Decency Act, which initially, did not have Section 230 in it, and rather initially was a criminal statute that would criminalize sending obscene information to minors. Uh, and that was a very controversial bill because the concern was that by putting such serious liability uh, on platforms for potentially accidentally sending pornography to minors, the platforms just wouldn't be able to operate, or they'd have to censor so much material that the internet would become unusable. And because of that, two individuals in the House, um, uh, uh, one of them was Ron Wyden, now, now the senator from Oregon, introduced an alternative uh, fix to the problem of uh, minors viewing pornography. Okay. And what they introduced was um, Section 230, this language. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> Section 230 was meant primarily to be a lighter touch way of encouraging uh, platforms to moderate content so as to deal with the amount of pornography that was floating around. So that's one part of the background. The other part okay. of the background is why was Section 230 written with this publisher language? And for that, we have to understand this, uh, this uh, case in 1995 that the authors were citing to. Um, and this was um, called Prodigy versus Stratton Oakmont. Uh, and uh, the Stratton Oakmont, if, if folks have seen the Wolf of Wall Street, was the very firm uh, in Wolf of Wall Street, yeah. uh, which uh, um, uh, in the early 1990s was still a reputable firm. Uh, and um, at some point, someone posted some very critical information about Stratton Oakmont on Prodigy, which was one of these old uh, social media profile uh, platforms, kind of now, like an AOL or CompuServe. Now, I uh, mean, I'm 50 years old. I remember using the internet in my parents' house. I graduated high school in 1990, God, 1991. So th I remember Prodigy and all of these things and sitting there typing things out. And I remember my parents wondering what the heck I was doing on that thing. Exactly. I, I still remember the stack of CDs you used to get and the horrible noise the modem made. <laughs> it's amazing, right. just as a side, to, to think about um, how much, uh, how important this moment was for internet law. I mean, so many of the most important statutes and decisions were made when we were still using dial-up modems right. and, uh, and, and getting online through, through CDs. Now, Prodigy's whole shtick, as it were, was that it was supposed to be a, a, a safe and, and family-friendly part of the internet. And the way that they did that was by aggressively moderating their bulletin boards, basically, that they hosted. So one of these bulletin boards was one about finance, and Prodigy moderated that bulletin board. Um, and when this Stratton Oakmont criticism showed up, Prodigy didn't take that down because there was no reason to. Now, Stratton Oakmont sued Prodigy, alleging that the criticism on the bulletin board was defamatory. Given what we know about Stratton Oakmont, it may very well not have been defamatory, as we later <laughs> learned, but that's what they, but that's what they uh, sued. And the judge in that case held that Stratton Oakmont, oh, sorry, pardon me, the judge, in that case, the judge in that case held that Prodigy should be potentially held liable mm -hmm. for this potentially defamatory comment because it moderated its servers and it chose not to moderate this post. The idea being, look, if you do any sort of curation, you are responsible for the stuff you don't curate. It's such an are... interesting decision. It was differentiating between if you did nothing, perhaps we wouldn't be upset. But you told us you were going to do your best and, and pay attention. So 
you let this one through, I guess you are responsible. Exactly. And you're responsible in the same way that a newspaper, uh, which chooses what op-eds to run, is responsible if it chooses to run an op-ed that defames someone. Um, not just the author of that op-ed is on the hook, but the newspaper is also on the hook. Now, when this okay. opinion came out, it became very clear that there was a big, big downside to this ruling, which was that it encouraged platforms to not moderate. Because now if you're a platform and you were scared of liability, and you have to also remember the platforms weren't that big at the time, and this was not behemoths that had infinite amount of money, right? Lawsuits could be a real problem for them. The incentive for the platforms was to not moderate content at all, because if they did moderate, then they'd be on the hook for anything that they let through. And this would be a disaster if the thing you're concerned about, for example, is a bunch of children getting to see a bunch of porn online. So when Section 230 was introduced, it was meant to solve this problem. It was meant to basically reverse this decision. And by doing so, make it more financially feasible for platforms to moderate content. And the hope of the people who introduced Section 230 was that this would replace the very punitive alternative Communications Decency Act. Now, what ended up happening for reasons that are not clear um, is that uh, when the Senate, which passed its version of the law, and the House, which passed its version of the law, got together in a conference committee to iron out the details and pass one law, instead of choosing an approach, they just took both approaches and glued them together. Huh. And in a way that didn't make any sense. Um, but that's what they did, and that's what was enacted. Um, very quickly thereafter, a bunch of civil liberties groups challenged the criminal law uh, provisions of Section 230, and the, AC and the Supreme Court, in a very famous case, ACLU versus Reno, struck down the criminal part of the Communications Decency Act on First Amendment grounds. Ah, yes. Which, which, which left, as a result, Section 230 floating around. And so by a series of kind of accidents, Section 230 ended up taking the entirety of the, uh, the, entirety of, the um, uh, of the space here. Um, then there's one, one last part of this story, and then we're finally done with the, with the background. A year after Section 230 was enacted, there was a case in the Fourth Circuit in Virginia, in the federal court there, called Zoran. And in Zoran, uh, it was Zoran versus AOL, yet another platform. And Zoran was an individual whose life was turned upside down when uh, people started posting on AOL that he was connected to the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and he was not, obviously. And his life was ruined because of this. He kept telling AOL, hey, this is false information. It's ruining my life. Please take it down. And AOL didn't. So he sued AOL saying, um, you are responsible for this because you knew mm -hmm. uh, that this information was there and you did, and you did nothing. Um, and his legal theory, because this was after Section 230 was uh, enacted, was that AOL was responsible not as a publisher, but rather as a different category under defamation law as a distributor. Hmm. Um, because under defamation law, if you're a distributor like a bookstore, you're not strictly liable for defamatory stuff you sell, which is to say if you don't know, you're not liable. But if you do know that you're selling defamatory stuff, you're still liable. And so he figured, look, Section 230 was just about publisher liability, and I'm bringing a different theory. This, the court disagreed, and in a very expansive ruling said, Section 230, sure, it's a, it's a narrow thing, but really we should read it much more broadly as a kind of First Amendment for the Internet. And we should really read it so as to immunize platforms almost in all circumstances for anything that third parties post. Because we want to give platforms the most incentive to keep as much stuff on the Internet as possible, because the Internet is such a big deal. And that's the Section 230 interpretation that has been adopted by basically all other courts in the last 30 years. And that the Supreme Court finally today, after 30 years of, frankly, being very late to this party, um, will finally tell us is if uh, it's right or not. So, but the only, yeah. so that's the law of the land that, that stands right now. And it's the uh, Gonzalez's family that is sort of challenging that decision. That's right. That's right. And and, you know, what I think is what I think is is interesting is that, um, you know, th there are almost two different Section 230s. There's the Section 230 that was enacted in 1996, which was a fairly narrow law that applied to a fairly narrow set of facts and that I and some other legal scholars uh, think um, uh you know, d does not reflect the current state of the law and that, you know, under that interpretation of under the original meaning of the Section 230, uh, Gonzalez would win. 
But then there's this other Section 230, which is the Section 230 as it's been interpreted by courts over the last 30 years. And that body of case law is enormously broad, much, much broader and potentially incorrect as, at least I think, incorrect as a matter of what Section 230 initially meant. But it is the law that platforms have been operating under for 30 years. It is the law, it is the interpretation that has served as the legal backdrop for the internet as we know it today. And so the Supreme Court has a very, very difficult task before it. And this was reflected in the oral arguments, which were very long and very confusing, and where the justices were quite humble about the difficulty here, which is we can either enforce what the law actually says and what was actually meant 30 years ago, which is ordinarily what courts are supposed to do with laws. But if we do that, we are going to potentially overturn 30 years of precedent and tank the modern internet. And so there's a sense that the Supreme Court might be too late to this party, right? That after 30 years of not correcting the mistake of the lower court, they're kind of stuck with this system because the reliance interests in our economy are so enormous. And so I think that is the kind of fundamental mm. tension here. And th there's there are no good there are no good outcomes. It's very tricky. I mean, sort of as a side note, but to the point that you're making of they're late to the party, and and we've been here for 30 years. The Supreme Court uh, certainly isn't hesitant to overturn 50 years of precedents that America relied on uh, in other other cases in Roe v. Wade, but uh, but and in so many other things. So I'm. Do you really think that they are hesitant to do that because of the 30 years of precedence or just because of the complexity of the situation? So it's very, very hard, you know, as Yogi right. Berra said, right? It's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. And that's something doubly true about the Supreme Court. Um, I think when the court announced that it was going to hear this case, a lot of us people who study this stuff uh, really thought that, well, they are only going to hear it if they're going to upturn the, right. the doctrine because otherwise why bother because because the gonzalez is lost in the lower court in the uh circuit court in the court of appeals and that's where it stands but for the supreme court taking it up for a further review yes yeah, exactly right it's, it's not like there's a, a disagreement between the different circuit courts which is you know what the supreme court has to has to resolve um, but I think there are two reasons now that the oral argument has happened to uh to think that maybe the Supreme Court doesn't quite have the appetite for this. The first is that um, the underlying liability theory of Gonzalez and the other plaintiffs, that these platforms are even in principle liable because they indirectly help terrorist groups by hosting and recommending their content. It's not actually obvious that that liability theory is going to work. And so if that liability do theory doesn't work, if, if the plaintiffs, in other words, were to lose on the underlying negligence claim, then there's yes. no reason to address what Section 230 does and does not do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the court might say, look, um, maybe we uh, maybe we um, can just kick this can down the line uh, a few more years until we get the right case to resolve this. So that's one pot. That, that's one reason to, to think that the court might uh, punt. The other reason is just the nature of the oral argument. Um, Justice Thomas, who has been the leader of you know, writing kind of separate opinions, criticizing the dominant interpretation of Section 230 was not in a particularly um, aggressive mood in terms of pushing back against the tech companies. You know, he, he seemed just as concerned about um, changing the law uh, or changing the interpretation um, as everyone else did. Um, and there just was no consensus on the court um, that there was a obvious way to limit the interpretation of Section 230 without causing a lot of problems. Now, to be clear, the, there were lots of there were lots of hard questions asked of the tech companies, um, and so you know, I'm not trying to make it out as if the court was particularly supportive of the tech companies. Um, but you know, I do think that you know, just because you you raised it, you know, when the court does overturn decades of precedent, obviously Roe versus Wade and the Dobbs decision that overturned that is the most salient example. Um, it's usually because the justices um, have a very firm view on the matter. A passion um, about it, yeah. They're very, very, they're passionate about it. They've thought about it for decades. They really know what they think and they're willing to take the cost of overturning precedent. Here, the justices clearly don't know what they think. Um, and I don't think it's because they're not tech savvy, um, though they're certainly not as tech savvy as, you know, your average Silicon Valley executive, um, but because this is 
fundamentally not a technical issue. It's a very difficult set of policy trade-offs about free expression on the internet versus harm on the internet. And so in the absence of very, very clear and well-thought views on the justices, um, I think that's where the kind of natural hesitancy of courts to not upturn the status quo comes in. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would not be surprised if we, if, um, you know, after all this waiting, um, ultimately the Supreme Court's decision is, is so minimal um, that it doesn't actually uh, clarify, um, you know, which, which for law professors like me is great because I can keep writing law review articles about <laughs> it. But of course, for, you know, society and me as a citizen is very frustrating because this is a huge issue and I, I'd like to know what the answer is. We're talking right now with Professor Alan Rosenstein. He is an associate professor of law at the University of Minnesota Law School. We are talking about uh, the recent case going before the United States Supreme Court, Gonzalez versus Google, debating the responsibility liability of search engine and Internet platforms. We'd love to have your questions or comments. Um, Give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you want to join the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, who's in the studio today? We have Jade. We have Jay in the studio. They are ready for your calls. They can patch you through to join uh, me and Professor Rosenstein on the air. Um, you can also pass a message on to them, and they will pass a message on to us if you don't want to join us. But either way, it's great to hear you. Um, at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, we did have a caller, Chris. He wanted to pass a message on, so thanks for doing that, Chris. Chris was just asking about the sort of lack of tech savvy of the United States Supreme Court and concerned that they're not really able to make the right decision because they don't have the knowledge and expertise. Um, Professor Rosenstein, do you want to sort of, you touched on that a little bit, but um, what's sort of the thought on that? There even was this this humorous aspect that I remember hearing when we were, when I was listening to like NPR, when the, the um, or arguments had happened of the, of the justices saying, you know, we're not the, you know, nine best experts on the internet. So it, there's this level of self-depreciation of acknowledging this isn't their level of expertise. That's right. That was Justice Kagan's line. She's, I think, one of the funnier justices. And she said, it, you know, we're not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. And that, that uh, you can hear a lot of laughter in, in the recording. And, and, and that's true. Um, there was a, a, a I think another famous example of this was from a, a decade ago when the court was hearing a case involved um, a wireless uh, 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 involved uh, text messages. Uh, and one of the justices at some point was having real trouble understanding how a text message gets from one phone to another phone and it goes to a satellite and into space. And you know, I think a lot of us who are, who are watching this were thinking, oh boy, this Stop is- Stop asking this is, these questions. This is, this is, yeah, this is hard, hard to watch. And to be clear, right, this is, I'm not trying to criticize the justices. They're trying they're to understand. They're, they're trying their so best intellectual, they can. right? They're trying the best they can, right? But you know, you went to law school, and you know, right? You learn, you learn law. You don't learn technology. So <laughs> this is a general concern about the Supreme Court and courts in general dealing with technological issues. I, I'm not that concerned in this case for for two reasons. Yes. First, as, as I mentioned before, I don't think this is fundamentally a technological question, or at least it's not one that requires a lot of tech savvy. Um, really, this comes down to um, sort of a policy trade-off question. Um, and, and that's not an easier question, but that's at least a question that justices are in principle able to think about. They are equipped to think uh, through those kinds of questions. The second reason is that um, at the end of the day, this is a what's called a statutory interpretation case. This is a case in which a court is saying what it believes the, uh, the proper interpretation of a congressional statute is. Yes. And what that means is that if the court, quote unquote, gets it wrong, or if Congress simply disagrees, um, or if Congress wants to change the law, they can just do that. Um, when, the, when a court issues a constitutional ruling, that's kind of the end of the story. You know, the only way to override that is with an amendment, and that's very hard to do. And so in those cases, the stakes are much higher. And so if the constitutional issue involves technology, well, then you're really stuck because they are literally the final word on that. But when it's an issue of statutory interpretation, Congress can always come in and say, okay, thank you for your opinion. We understand that that is how you're interpreting the statute. We are changing the statute to clarify this is what we really mean. And then the courts are bound by that. Um, now, obviously, 
we don't have the most functional Congress, um, uh, but Congress does legislate all the time. It does pass things. And it occurs to me that um, Section 230, Internet reform, these are actually the sorts of things that where Congress, on the one hand, you know, both cares a lot about the issue enough that it can get on Congress's agenda. And there actually might be room for some sort of bipartisan compromise. Yeah. Um, This is an area in which the politics are actually not super obvious. There's not like a super obvious red-blue split on this issue, uh, uh, unlike on so many issues in our country. Um, And uh, one of the benefits of that is that that does create some space for some interesting um, uh, cooperation. I'm not saying that it would happen, um, but it could happen. And so this is why I'm sort of generally optimistic that this body of law will be improved one way or the other in the next three to four to five years. Well, and I will add one more thing on top of that before we get into the heart of what the legal arguments were, is that it does seem to echo what you were saying. It does seem like the U.S. Supreme Court isn't split on the traditional you know, partisan lines that they are in so many other things we're used to. You know, exactly what you were saying is that there's room for bipartisanship in the sense that we saw bipartisanship, if you can use that word, because obviously they are not party-affiliated members of the U.S. Supreme Court, but there was not the traditional conservative-liberal split on this uh, when they were discussing it in oral arguments. Yeah, and that was just so notable. It was interesting. Um, you know, this was one of the most difficult and um, honestly uh, headache-inducing uh, oral arguments I've, <laughs> I've listened to. I, I, I took a lot of Advil and a nap after that three-hour marathon <laughs> oh, argument, no. um, w- which was on the one hand unpleasant in the moment, uh, but on reflection was actually wonderful because the reason it was so hard was because there were no obvious answers. Hmm. And the justices were thinking like people, not like avatars of a political party or a judicial ideology. And they were really trying to help each other and understand these issues. And it really, as someone who you know is a lawyer, is a law professor, teaches the law to students, um, was really um, heartwarming, to be perfectly honest, um, because it felt like, wow, the Supreme Court can actually be a court of law, not just a court of politics. You know, When you listen to the, the Dobbs argument or you listen to the argument about affirmative action, those are important arguments and because they're important they're interesting but you kind of know what everyone's going to say the arguments are super pre-baked yeah um there's not actually a lot of thinking going on in those arguments um and so they're not that interesting even if they're obviously very very important um but with something like section 230 this is you know as as much of a um a loose ball right to use a a sports analogy um as you can imagine Uh, and again from the perspective of companies that want certainty that's not uh, encouraging um from the perspective of people like me who think about the supreme court and you know want to engage with it intellectually uh and sort of on good faith legal reasoning it's fabulous yeah yeah well uh, let's let's sort of break that down then Let's, let's get to some of the conversations that they had um okay I want to start with understanding then the concept of what exactly was happening. It's not just that they published this, but the argument was you publish it and then you sort of put your thumb on the scale by, you know, if I can use the word thumb, when you create thumbnails, when you create, you Google one thing, you search for something else and ooh, looks at look at all these recommendations that come up. Where do these recommendations come from? Who's making these recommendations? So are they really just a publisher or are they more than that? Uh, yeah, this, this, this was the, this was three hours worth of, of argument <laughs> and we did not frankly get to clarity on it. Huh. The, the problem is that this is one of these situations and it happens pretty commonly in the law, though this may be an extreme case where this and where the stakes are very high, where you, you have this spectrum and the ends of that spectrum are pretty clear, but the hard part is drawing a line somewhere in the middle that is not arbitrary. And so let me be concrete about this. I think there's general agreement that a platform that literally just hosts a bunch of videos and doesn't do anything else, right? It's just a platform and there's you know video one, two, three to one billion. Right. Uh, and in order to access that video, you need to know which number it is and you have to enter it into your URL and then you get served the video that that platform would be completely covered by Section 230. That is almost only a database where you literally call something up and that literal thing that you call call up is the thing that is presented to you. Exactly, right? And so I think we can all agree that that is not recommendation. 
On the other hand, you can imagine a platform that aggressively recommends. So uh, an example that uh, Judge, uh, both Justices Sotomayor and Judge Justice Jackson uh, uh, brought up in oral argument was, you know, imagine a, a, a dating website uh, that discriminates on the basis of race. So it will not show users of one race the dating profiles of uh, the users of another race. Okay. Um, uh, and, and that's like hard-coded into the algorithm. Um, that algorithm or that company, um, I think there's general consensus, we want them to be held liable for violating anti-discrimination law. We don't want Section 230 to uh, cover that. Um, and that kind of overt shaping intentional heavy hand intentional heavy-handed shaping right should be considered a recommendation that goes beyond being treated as a publisher okay so we've identified our two extremes so what about youtube where does that fit in well the problem is it's fit it's in somewhere in the middle and it's not clear uh and this is something that um a lot of the justices pushed pretty hard on gonzalez's lawyer and the government which is also arguing for gonzalez's position on was well okay what if we say that youtube's algorithms are sufficient of a recommendation uh, as to go beyond being a publisher. Well, does that mean that Google search engine is also a recommendation? Because when I type something into Google search engine, what I get back is not just an answer. I get back a list of answers and they are ranked. And they are ranked according to Google's idea of what would be most useful for me as the user of its search engine product. That's a recommendation, right? How is right. that different than YouTube? So are you saying that we want search engines? to now be potentially held liable um, for how they rank, um, that would be a you know, monumental change. Um, and I think what was interesting is you could sort of tell the justices may not use YouTube, but everyone uses Google. Um, and so the, the trick is to calibrate mm -hmm. um, in a way that leads to good policy outcomes and is also in a way that lower courts can actually apply to new fact patterns, a principle for what counts as recommendation that gets you out of section 230 versus recommendation that is uh, limited enough that you stay within section 230. And I think the biggest problem with the argument that Gonzalez's lawyer and the government put forward is that they could not, they could not articulate a crisp rule for the court. Um, and the fact that they could not articulate a crisp rule after thinking about this for months and months and months and months, knowing that this is exactly what the court was going to push them on, right. indicates how hard this problem is. Well, and it, it sort of highlights why everyone is saying this has potential to, you know, blow up the Internet as we know it. I mean, it does. It doesn't sound like the Supreme Court is going in that direction. But right. There's no one out there that wants the two extremes that we talked about. We don't want an entity that says, OK, we're so afraid you're going to hold us responsible. Hands off. Go ahead. Free for all. Best of luck finding anything you want. When any of us go into a search engine when we went into a search engine to find, you know, you, Professor Rosenstein, to find someone that wanted to talk about the show, we were fortunate enough that we got profiles and information about individuals so that we knew to reach out to you on a cold call. But we knew the foundation was this is gonna, this is the guy we want. I mean, we can't do our job if it's just random chaos and best of luck finding your needle in a haystack. But then that's right. The, and right. And just think if I were to come on this radio show and say terrible, defamatory, offensive things, would we really want you to be able to sue Google right. for recommending that I go onto your show? I, how is this going to operate? I mean, I, I'm also old enough to remember the battle days before Google when you entered something into a search engine and like you didn't really get a you very got good horrible result. things. You yes. got horrible, horrible yes. things, bad results, useless results. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we, we don't want that. But at the same time, right, we don't want companies, you know, these Big companies, and you know, these are not, these are the biggest companies in the world that we spend all our time on that fundamentally shape our lives. I mean, you know, forget the metaverse, we're in the metaverse already, right? Just existing on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Do we want those companies to be able to do literally anything they want without ever being able to be held accountable for that? That, that doesn't seem no, like the right answer. That's either. not helpful either, correct? Because there is. You can envision a world where they go too far, where the things that are recommended, and I mean, welcome to America, we're a capitalist country, the things that they recommend, they recommend the ones that, oh, they get an extra boost, right? I 
went searching for Lizzo tickets. And when I bought Lizzo, t- right here I am, the 50-year-old woman that said, hey, I'm going to go get Lizzo tickets with my daughters and have fun. And now I'm all of a sudden getting Taylor Swift. I say that because I know who Taylor Swift is. And a bunch of other things. I have no idea who these people are. I'm like, no, stop, stop messing with the 50-year-old woman. But they took the history of, oh, you search for Google. Someone has paid us money, or you search for Lizzo. Someone has paid us money that when you search for Lizzo, we're going to show you all these other things. And there's there's a profit in that. And I could see that going awry, where if there's not a check, profit can take take control over something else. Or maybe that is what should be the priority because we're a capitalist country. But these are such interesting conversations on a business concept of how does the Internet work and how does it shape what we do every day? And, and that's right. And I think the key word here is conversation. And and I want to sort of pivot just for a second, if I may, and kind of zoom out a little bit mm-hmm. and, and do the annoying law professor thing of talking about how we're talking about what we're talking about, which is that um, we're treating this as if it's some technical issue to be decided by the Supreme Court. But it's not. It's fundamentally a values choice that we as a society need to make and are entitled, because we live in a democracy, to make about trading off on the one hand there's some inevitable conflict between the 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 benefits to free expression that an immunity regime like section 230 provides and on the other hand the harms that an immunity regime like section 230 provides i don't think there's a right answer and i don't certainly think that i you know even if i thought there was a right answer and i'm one of these people that thinks you know, I, I change my mind on this depending on which side of the bed I wake up on. I'm, I'm really conflicted on this issue. Even if I could come up with an answer for myself, I'm not sure that'd be your answer or any of the listeners' answers. This is just a choice we have to make, which is why I do think that um, ultimately Congress does need to step in because Congress is, for better or for worse, the way that in a democracy we make these difficult value uh, trade-offs. Um, and, and so you know, there's part of me that is actually uh, hoping that the Supreme Court um, dramatically limits the scope of Section 230 um, in its ruling, Um, not actually because I think that that would be the best answer for society necessarily, but because the disruption that that would cause Mm. to the internet would be so great. And in particular, the disruption to the tech companies would be so great that they would then use all their political capital to go to Congress and say, fix this. It would force Congress to act. Either give us Section 230 back or at least give us something back, right? If we're not going to do Section 230, fine, but you need to protect us in a different way. And there are different models. Um, so kind of the way I've, I've been thinking about this issue for, for a while now is not so much that the Supreme Court should think about getting the right answer, because I, I'm really not sure there is a right answer, or I don't think the Supreme Court is capable of figuring out the right answer, but the Supreme Court should do whatever it can to get the proper institution, which is to say Congress, to re-engage with this uh, with this uh, 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 issue, and I just worry that if the Supreme Court upholds the status quo, because the status quo right now is quite beneficial for the technology companies because it provides this broad immunity, um, the technology companies are obviously not going to be invested uh, in upsetting that mm. beneficial status quo, and they're going to actually push very hard against any reforms to Section 230. So that's kind of how I think about the what you might think of as the kind of political economy of this debate. That's such an interesting conversation and refreshing to hear that from you because that's not a lawyer answer. That's a, we have a problem and I want to get us to a solution. And if this comes out, we will never get a solution. If if it just sort of gets affirmed and patted on the head, we're going to st- keep the status quo. No one's going to challenge. And Right. I, I made a sort of ridiculous, lighthearted, you know, reference to Lizzo tickets. But this case is actually about an incredibly important situation, which is, you know, ISIS using the Internet. And I, I think your point is very valid. This isn't a legal conversation. It's OK. ISIS uses the Internet. So how do we stop that from happening without destroying the Internet and destroying democracy? That's right. And I I mean, I just want to clarify. I mean, I do think there is a legal question embedded here, which is, what does this statute mean? And when we ask, what does this statute mean? We really mean, what did Congress mean when it enacted the statute in 1996? Um, You know, I've done a bunch of work on this. I have convinced myself, at least, and at least some of my colleagues, uh, that uh, the answer is fairly clear and that Congress did not mean 
the very broad interpretation of Section 230. So if uh, that, that Taking exists today. Taking it back, so, the, the, the case that you talked about that happened yeah, afterwards. It, 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 exactly, right? So um, if the court was just to, to, to answer the legal question, I actually think there's like a pretty reasonable answer here. But you are correct that, you know, whether you want to think of it as an, a non-lawyer answer or um, I like to think of it as uh, the, the, the best version of lawyering um, is not just narrowly about technical legal questions. It understands that law is a means to social ends, to a better and more just society, however we define that. Um, and so it's that question that 30 years later is kind of overshadowing, and properly so, the narrow legal question. Uh, and it's that question that is so devilishly difficult because you have two conflicting values that are not just important, but are in the context of the internet where they're just magnified enormously. Um, and, and why I think the court is in such a, such a, such a pickle. Can I just say as a university of Minnesota law school grad, I so appreciate the comments that you just made. And it reminds me of the spirit of why so many of us wanted to be lawyers and not conversations. I recall hearing from many of my professors. So I, w I wish you were one of my professors back in 2020, um, but I'll, I'll take the conversation now. Um, Thank, thanks for letting me have it. Well, so here's the next question is, what is the business community saying? What are people, right? We are seeing these sensational headlines that are obviously generated by some sort of doomsday approach of don't let this happen kind of thing. What is the feel out there from internet providers and businesses in general of what could happen with this case. Yeah, so I, I think it's fair to say that the consensus view among the business community and certainly among the providers is that the more Section 230, the better, um, the more liability, the better, which, of course, makes sense because, of course, a business would want more liability immunity rather than less. Um, now, I, I'm, you know, that's in their business interests. Now, I, I think that a lot of these views are very honestly held. I, I think that the people who run Facebook and Google and Twitter think that in addition to being very good for their bottom line, an expansive Section 230 is also good for society. Right. Um, uh, and so I would be very clear, I'm not accusing them of sort of any bad faith, uh, bad faith thinking, but it's not that surprising that the business community, when asked, um, hey, do you want more liability or less liability? We'll say, we'd like less liability, right. please. Right. Is there a concern out there that there is going to be a decision that does roll back 230? I mean, especially your thought about it seems like you think there is a middle ground, but it didn't seem to be presented to the justices that there was a middle ground. So someone somewhere is going to have to craft this. And that wasn't part of the oral argument conversation. That, that, that's right. You know, this is, you know, this, the justices are very smart. They have very smart law clerks. That's what they're doing right now behind the scenes, I'm sure. There is a lot of concern uh, about this. Um, uh, uh, you know, again, I think there's less concern after oral argument when you saw the folks like Justice Thomas, who you would imagine to be potentially most skeptical of a broad interpretation of Section 230, really walk that back. And some very strong statements from um, Justice, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh about the potential um, uh, economic and, and financial and commercial and business costs of, of narrowing it. So, you know, if I was a lawyer, you know, if I was a general counsel of one of these companies and I was advising my CEO, um, what I think would happen, I would say, hey, look, I think it is more likely than not, 60, 40, 70, 30, maybe, that Section 230 will come out uh, of this case, either unscathed or, you know, if if narrowed, then only by a very small amount. But things, you know, thirty percent probabilities happen all the time, right? Uh, and so this is a, you know another another reason. Getting back to our earlier conversation, um, you know, most Supreme Court cases on big issues, you know, what's going to happen, right? Like I think everyone sort of understood what was going to happen with the Dobbs case long before it was decided. Correct. This is not one of those cases, uh, which makes it very exciting for legal scholars and nerve wracking for everybody else. So what, what, let, putting this case aside then, what does have to happen to make the internet safer? And boy, is that a crazy question that I'm asking you with, you know, a minute left to go. But are there other tools you talked about Congress? Because ultimately, if, if the Supreme Court punts, at least it started the conversation that you and I are having right now that everyone is having about what does internet safety look like? Yeah. So 
bracketing the question of substantively, what does it look like? Because we'll all have different views on that. I do think that even if, you know, once we figure out what kind of internet we want, I think just having li like civil liability in courts is not the way to achieve it. I do think we're going to need some actual top-down regulation. Take, take the analogy of cars, right, or other products that can be dangerous or not. You know, if you have a defective car and it injures you, sure, you can sue the manufacturer and that will create incentives to have safer cars. But there's also a whole regulatory apparatus that doesn't allow cars to go out on the market. Um, unless they're safe and they can recall cars. We have agencies that are designed to do this. And they're designed to do this because Congress passed a law that told agencies, hey, work with courts uh, to comprehensively regulate the space. And so I do think that one of the downsides of the very broad interpretation of Section 230 that's been dominant for the last 30 years is that it has taken the pressure off of Congress and the executive branch mm. to actually do some regulation. So I, again, you know, 10 years from now, I suspect that we're going to have some combination of liability under certain circumstances and regulation under other circumstances. And we're never going to stop fighting about this issue because we're in a pluralistic society and we should keep fighting about this issue. But that that system will be a better way of fighting that issue than the system we have right now. Well, and the Internet has changed quite a bit since 1995 and 1996. And right, because I knew everything there was to know. I was the, you know, 20 year old Internet genius of 1996. And I am a clueless dummy to quote my children um, right now in 2023. So, yeah, it's pretty funny. Um so my final question for you is what what timeline? When do you think we would see decisions? Remind us that usually decisions come out June, July. It feels like summer here in Wisconsin. So any second now? Yeah, no, it's lo lovely here in Minneapolis as well. Um, I, I suspect that for this kind of opinion, given when it was heard and how complicated it will be, um, it'll probably come out. Well, then there are two options. If the court decides we're not going to decide this, this case at all, that could come out any moment. But if the court okay. actually des decides like, OK, here's an opinion, here's an actual interpretation of Section 230, I think that's going to be one of the last opinions of the term because I can't imagine it's going to be unanimous. It's going to be really hard to write. It's such a big deal. Um, and, you know, this could be late June. This could be July. Yeah, remind me, this term goes all the way into July, and so it could be a couple months de away. De depending on, yeah, depending on, on how long it takes for the, the, the term goes until the court's done. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's been fabulous talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today, for breaking this all down, for giving us the analysis. So much to think about. This is this conversation is so has has made me think about so many more things than I thought it would. It's just been fabulous talking with you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Professor Alan Rosenstein, um, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. And I want to thank everyone for listening today. Thanks, Jade and Charlie, for putting the show together. Thanks, Jay, for engineering. Mary Jo, for staffing the phones. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the fabulous, fabulous summer out there. And I want to remind you, you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We will be back again next week. I think we're going to talk about some of the Supreme Court decisions that are looking at um, the impact on students and college students in particular. So join us again next week. Thanks, everyone. On the credit card just keeps on compounding But the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down I'm indirect, we come and never pre-recorded With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it